0: As we prepare to hear God's word together, I'm going to ask you once again, if you would, join me in Psalm 118. Psalm 118, I'm going to begin reading in verse 19 and read through the end of the chapter. Psalm 118, verse 19, through the end of the chapter. Listen as I read God's word. Open to me. The gates of righteousness, that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. I will extol you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let's pray. Lord God, once again, as we take this time this morning to open up your word, whenever we do, it is our desire that you would make your word clear to us. God, that the word that you have given here and the truth that it unfolds and unpacks for us, that we would see it. Lord, for those of us uh, who are here, uh, who are, have grown some degree in our faith, we pray that as we hear these great and ancient truths, that our hearts would resound and really overflow in worship to you. Lord, we pray that when we consider these truths and the wonderful power and clarity of them, I just ask, God, that you would uh, stir us today. Lord, help us never to be um, uh, dispassionate when we hear your word. This is your word, God, that you've given to us, your people, to correct us, to instruct us, to train us in all righteousness. Lord, so that we will know the way to go, that we will understand what you have done, and that we would walk in a way that's pleasing in your sight. So I pray, God, grant that I would speak your word clearly this morning. Grant your people ears to hear. Unite our hearts by your spirit in worship. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So today we take up Psalm 118 for our third part of it. And as we begin to take this up, I want us to um, see the way that this unfolds. And it's a beautiful way to watch the hand of God because someone was mentioning this morning this is Reformation Sunday and it is indeed the closest Sunday to the historic Reformation Day and well but you're preaching part three of Psalm 18 aren't you going to preach a special message on the Reformation and what's remarkable about that is the the most profound thing of the Reformation was a commitment to the recovery of God's Word. Where God's people were given God's Word. Where it was taken out of the hands of the few and it was given to the people. Actually, we'd be surprised. Some of those early men who sought to take the Word of God and translate it into the language where people could read it for themselves were killed for doing so. They were martyred for making God's Word available to the common man. Now the fear was stated in this way. If everyone has it then there's a dangerous thing because the Word of God can be complex and difficult to interpret. That's one way of saying it. Another way of saying it might be this. If everyone has their own Bible. The things that are not complex, that we are contrary with, they will see our errors. <laughs> and that was the concern the, the then church could control the masses by saying this is what we believe. Where our commitment in the recovery of the Reformation was not simply this is what we believe, but thus saith the Lord, it is written. That is a distinctively different. This is what we believe because it is written. That foundation of the scriptures. And there is an amazing amount of parallels, actually, in the second part or the third part of this psalm. To the themes of the Reformation. And I want to begin to take those up right now. The big theme of the, of the Reformation, we, we read it this morning in Romans 1, the just shall live by faith. After so much time uh, wrangling and wrestling with the, the powerful sin within himself, Martin Luther was convinced that he would never be sufficiently sinless to get it fixed. In his time that he went and visited Rome, and saw the ways that they were saying you could get your sin for, forgiven you could get years taken off of purgatory by visiting this skull of John the Baptist and by climbing up these steps on your knees he did those things but as he did them they just seemed empty they did he, he still felt guilty in his sin He didn't feel like these things changed me at all these things made it right in his study of the scripture He would eventually come across as he's reading and studying the Greek New Testament these words The just shall live by faith And at that point he realized It's not by penance It's not by works It's not by some decree of the church it is by faith alone that we stand justified in the presence of God. He makes us righteous. And there is no righteousness apart from Him. It tells us this in verse 19. Open to me the gates of, the, of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. So here is, here is his call to God. Open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter into them and give thanks to the Lord. Now, historically speaking, there were different gates on the temple and different entrances, but there was not a specific gate that was called the gates of the righteous because this is telling us something bigger. Now, if you think about it, Gates of the righteous, and this is not a complicated, this is not a trick question. Gates of the righteous. Who would be appropriate to enter such a gate? Here is the gate of the righteous. All enter this gate who are righteous. Well, who's going to be able to enter that gate? And that's what we begin to deal with. The scriptures begin to tell us things like this. And we briefly alluded to it last week, and we'll bring it into fuller focus this. Psalm 143 verse 2 says this, Enter not into judgment with your servant, for there is no one living that is righteous before you. Open wide the gate of the righteous imagine the gate is open Who gets to go in No one living is righteous before you This is something so important and this is also part of what what Luther and the Reformation began to recover He looked at himself and he was trying so hard and he knew he was not righteous But he was hearing stories, and there were practices that, yeah, you may not be righteous, but there's been plenty of other righteous people. And some of those people had an abundance of righteousness. They did not only enough to save themselves. They did enough that there's like extra leftovers. And that gets put over in a little treasury box, the treasury of merit. And so when you need a little bit, You can buy it from the church and they can take a little of the extra righteousness of this fella and this fella and they can give it to you. Well, here's the problem. Though that may seem acceptable in the minds of men, they may look at others and see them as more righteous than themselves. They may see men who have striven and worked and done many things in this world and accomplished much. The scripture reminds us about the righteousness of men. We considered it briefly on Tuesday night. What are are men, apart from faith, what are men's righteous works? Our righteous deeds are as filthy rags before God. Is that acceptable? Can you enter? So those things that we think are so good and so clean and so pure are actually filthy and wretched and unacceptable. No one is righteous before him. It tells, us, um, it tells us this in Romans chapter three, verse 28. It says, "For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law." That's, that's right there in Romans 3:28. If you went up to Romans 3:10, it said this: "None is righteous, no." Not one All right, so the gates have opened up wide Who gets to go in? Well, it's it's a tragic situation If we're simply left at that But we're gonna see something uh, Unfold a little bit more uh, As we get into this But I want us to see this Romans 4 5 says this To the one who does not work But believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted or reckoned as righteousness. So I'm never gonna have enough righteousness of my own to go through those gates. But here's the beauty if I, by grace, have faith in Jesus Christ, my faith is counted. As righteousness. And so I'm not actually on my own righteous. But united to Christ. His righteousness counts for. And covers me. So that I can walk through that door. And it's not a mask. It's a genuine permanent covering. As I enter those gates. I don't have to look with furtive glances from side to side I hope no one sees what I'm really like inside of this because the righteousness of Christ is permanent we are what the scriptures calls clothed in the righteousness of Christ the picture that's given at one point in the Old Testament is is of a, a Joshua the high priest and it says take away from him his dirty clothes and his dirty rags and put on him new ones fresh white and clean though you were filthy you will be washed whiter than snow and so it's such a beautiful picture this um now part of the challenge that comes in this and part of the struggle that that luther had to some extent is there was such a works-based system in Catholicism, and he recognized the Scripture says that salvation is not by works of the law. No one will be justified, but it is by faith alone. Our standing before God, our acceptance before God in Christ is solely on the basis of faith. Amen? But then here comes the confusion. You have, uh, you walk down the road, and the confusion can come sort of like what some people faced during the age of indulgences. There's a story of of one of the forerunners to the Reformation walking and seeing someone who, who would come to his church services and hear his word sitting on the roadside in a drunken stupor. He says, what what are you doing? How how have you let yourself go like this? Why are you doing this? You know that the people who do these things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And he held up to him his little writ of indulgences. I'm fine. I'm clear. I'm holding this up. It doesn't matter what I do because I got this little paper. Did that work? It does not. And the scriptures do warn us, our acceptance with God is entirely by faith, but we must not use faith and the righteousness that is ours by faith like that man did his indulgences. It's okay. It doesn't matter what I do. I can just carry on in sin and, and just hold up my faith. It doesn't matter what I do because I believe. Is that right? Into that, the scriptures also come forward and say, wait a moment. The demons themselves believe and tremble or shudder. They also know that. That's why James says it this way. So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. This was part of the challenge. Now, we're saved by faith alone. But the saving faith, the justifying faith, the righteous clothing faith that God gives to his people is not a dead faith. It is a living faith. Those who are made righteous, those who are declared right before God in Christ, their right standing now moves them to a right living those who have faith that faith is a foundation that produces faithfulness remember faith is not simply something in the mind we walk by faith not by sight faith is not merely something we believe with our minds The faith that God grants us is so comprehensively complete that it becomes the very source of all of our life. And so if someone says, I have faith, but their deeds are not consistent with it, that's a dangerous position. You cannot just hold up, but I believe. It doesn't change the fact that Drunkards revilers greedy swindlers. They will not inherit the kingdom of God But what if I believe if you believe he will deliver you from that? lifestyle He will deliver you from that practice this way He goes on to say but someone will say you have faith and I have works So listen someone will try to say works Will work save you? Will a faith that is dead save you? No. The faith that works saves you. Are you saved by the works? No. You're saved by the faith. But the saving faith that God gives is a living and active faith that produces works. Let me... me, State it this way using the language of first and second Thessalonians says this in first Thessalonians 1 verse 3 Remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and Steadfastness of hope in the Lord remembering your work of faith, so Some translations rightly render the sense of it your works of Produced by faith look what it says in 2nd Corinthians 1:11. to this end We pray for you always that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may prepare Fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power See that's the beauty of it the power of God that grants us faith also enables us to some degree to be faithful i had to say to some degree do you know why because we're still not perfect and part of the part of the reality and sometimes we say well why not because i'll tell you this if any of us ever reached sinless perfection in this life how far do you think that fellow would be from boasting How far do you you think that fellow would be from thinking he has some contribution? He has something to give. There's nothing more humbling than to realize, as the Apostle Paul did, I haven't laid hold of it yet, but I press on, straining and striving for the upward call in Christ Jesus. It's not done yet. Okay? So, um, we are saved by faith. It is a saving faith, it is a justifying faith, it is a working faith. It is a a faith that bears fruit. The way it's stated, for example, in John 15, 5, it says this, I am the vine, this is Jesus, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him... He it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So apart from Christ, what happens? Nothing. In Christ, what happens? You bear much fruit. Well, what if I want to be one of those who are in Christ, but do nothing? Yeah, that's not... (laughs) That's not the way that it works because the power of the Word, the presence of the Spirit, the work and accomplishments of, of, of Christ that are then brought to bear on our souls by grace don't leave us there. They absolutely transform us. One, one, one way you might want to think about this, um, there's a, a reasonably popular saying People will say something like this. The heart wants what the heart wants. It's like hey I can't help it. And people have whitewashed a multitude of sins. With hey the heart wants what the heart wants. I'm not saying that's not true. The heart does want what the heart wants. But if you have a look and a listen at what the heart wants, then you'll know where your heart is. (laughs) Because if your heart wants the wanton pleasures of this world, then what kind of heart do you have? A heart from this world. But when God takes out that fleshly, that that heart of stone, when God takes out that worldly, earthly heart, and, and he puts a new heart in its place, and he makes you a new creation in Christ Jesus, what now happens? In a sense, he pours his love into our hearts by the Spirit, and we want to please him. I mean, Christ is that example. We're being molded and shaped, and we've been predestined into the image of his Son, and his Son was one who pleased his Father at all times. It was his will and his commitment and his life accomplishment that he always pleased his Father in everything. The heart wants what the heart wants. Here's the question. Is your heart, and does my heart long to please our Father? By this, John 15 verse 8, by this the Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Do I want to please Him? Do I want to glorify Him? How will that be done? Bearing much fruit. Bearing much fruit proves to be disciples. And bearing much fruit is the guaranteed outcome of abiding in him. And there were two choices. You're either abiding in him and you're bearing much fruit. Or you're not and you're cut off and thrown into the fire. So the just shall live by faith. There is none righteous except him. Open to me the gates of the righteous that I may enter in and give thanks to the Lord. Verse 20. This is the gate of the Lord. Now there's a slight change back in uh, Psalm 118. Open to me the gates of the righteous. This is the gate of the Lord. Because who alone is Righteous the Lord himself so you open up the gate of the righteous and who actually is fit to go in none but the Lord see that's why the scripture tells us that what Jesus our great high priest did exceeded anything of the past high priests Remember, they would go through their various sacrificial requirements in order to to once a year enter into the holiest, holiest places in order to offer those sacrifices of atonement. And and they could only enter in there that once a year and then they had to get out because they themselves were not fit really to stand in the presence of God. They only had sort of a, a, a temporary covering by those sacrifices to get in and get out. Because they also didn't belong. But then when Jesus breathed out his last and yielded up his spirit. You remember what the scripture says. That veil in the temple that separated the holiest of holies. That veil in the temple that separated that which, which stood for The very presence of God among his people, that which was the mercy seat, the place of hope, the place of forgiveness, the place of access to God, that place, the the veil was torn in two from top to bottom, opening it up. Because through Christ, we have boldness and confidence to enter into the presence of God. You realize this, in Christ, in our prayers and pleadings with God, we are nearer God than any old covenant high priest ever was. Because we are near in Christ, the righteous one. No other had that access, and that's, that's really the second thing that we see here. It is by faith... But this faith is not simply a random faith. The only way to have this righteousness and this enter is by Christ alone. Look what it says in verse 22. And you begin to see this. This is the gate of the Lord. The access to this righteous, uh, to enter this righteous gate, to enter this temple place, to worship God. How does it come? Verse 21, I thank you. That you have answered me and become my salvation. How did it happen that we are saved? How does it happen that we'll, we'll be made righteous? Verse 22. The stone that the builders rejected has become the, sto- the cornerstone. Now, what is that a reference to? Now, that might have been confusing in the days of the writing of the psalm. What's he referring to? the stone that the builders rejected became the cornerstone i don't understand it that's right a lot of the old <laughs> old testament prophets they made careful search and inquiry about the things that would be but we by the grace of god live on the other side of the incoming of christ his death and resurrection and so we have powerful words like we have in matthew 21 Verse 42 and following, this is Jesus, Jesus said to them have you never read in the scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone this is the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes therefore I tell you the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces and when it falls on anyone it will crush him So here Jesus is now taking up this very psalm and he's bringing it now it is happening The cornerstone is being established But he's he's presenting it in a way that's very challenging it it forms the corner It forms the point of the foundation upon which everything else is built but then he begins using the stone to crush some people, too. And to, to see the way that it really unfolds, you, you, you can look at a few other passages. Uh, for example, in Romans nine thirty two and 33, it says, Why did some of those who were trying to achieve righteousness not achieve it? Well, because they were striving by the law. Verse nine, chapter 9, verse 32. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works, they have stumbled over the stumbling stone. Again, it's presenting this picture. Um, To think that I can do it, I cannot. To think that somehow I'm going to make it on my own, I cannot. There is another. Another and this is the stumbling point for some. So it's not on anything in me. So I've got no contribution. So I, I don't add any value to it. It is all of Christ. And then the scriptures uh, tell us over and over again. You see it in Acts chapter 4:11, in Ephesians 2:20, in 1 Peter 2:24. Do you know who that stumbling stone is? Jesus Christ. And so Here's the gates of the righteous. Here's the gates of the Lord. The righteous enter by it. But how will they do it? Well, here's the only way you can do it. The stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Acts 4.11 said it this way. This Jesus is the stone rejected by you. So this is this is so helpful. We're not left to speculate. I wonder what the stone represents. No, no, no. This stone is Jesus. And then it goes on to say the builder which has become the cornerstone. And so what the scriptures do for us here is it tells us and it prepares us for a doctrine, uh, a teaching by faith in Christ alone. Which points to this what we what we call the divine transaction The nature of the divine transaction it it simply uh, says this here's that gate of the righteous and it's opened up But I can't go in if you go to the book of revelations You have the new new heaven and the new earth and none enter it except the righteous and all the unrighteous are left out and cast away and so Here's the difficult situation, no one can go in that's not righteous, no one's righteous, no not one, but there is one righteous, the stone, and I have to put aside any thought of my own worthiness, any thought of my own righteousness, any any hope that I might achieve it, and I have to look to Christ. In Christ alone. And this is the way that the the divine transaction is described for us in the book of Galatians. Now it's evident in Galatians 3.11 and following. Now it's evident that no one is justified before God by the law. The righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written... Cursed is everyone that hangs on a tree so that in Christ Jesus the blessings of Abraham come to the Gentiles So that we receive the promised spirit through faith okay, so Basically, it says this here. I am outside of that gate and Everyone else in mankind is all outside that gate with me and we are all cursed And there's no way that we can go in there. But the scriptures begin in this one to tell us this. Yeah, you can't uncurse yourself. But Christ came. Fulfilled the works of the law. Fulfilled all righteousness. And he died on the cross. And he became a curse for us. So, in a sense, the curse of condemnation and punishment for sin was taken off of me... And Put on to him. It's described even further in uh, 2nd Corinthians chapter 5 verse 21 for our sake He made him to be sin who knew no sin So that in him we become the righteousness of God So here's now the way that it's being described again. Also. We have this the the language of 1st Peter 2 24 he himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree. So here's the reality. I'm standing outside that gate and I can't enter in because of the multitude of unworthiness and sin that is mine. All of my sins in what we call the divine transaction and all of the judgment that is due for all that I would done are put on Christ and he bore our sins in his body on the tree. It's put entirely on Him. And we become the righteousness of God in Him. So that's the idea of the divine transaction. The curse, the condemnation, the punishment, the sin and unrighteousness was taken off of me and put on Christ at the cross. And His perfections, His worthiness, His righteousness... His acceptance was put on me. That's the divine transaction where it's completely been removed and switched. Um, The way it says it in Isaiah 53 is this in verse 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. But the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. So everyone who ever enters that gate knows they only enter that gate because God took their iniquity and put it on him on the cross. And he took Christ, God took Christ's righteousness and clothed us with it so that we have that and we enter and we're accepted in the beloved. Really, um... Got to move on a little more quickly. I want to move on to the the third point here. In, In reading that passage, it's important for us to see this. The stone that the builders rejected, verse 22, has become the chief cornerstone. So all of this transaction, me bringing my unrighteousness, me needing righteousness to get in. The righteousness is supplied to me by Christ who is the cornerstone. How did all this happen? That I got from condemnation to life. From unrighteousness to righteousness. From absolutely despair to hope. How did I get from one place to another? From lost to found. From imprisoned to set free. How did this happen? Well, verse 23 gives us a sense of it. This is... The Lord's doing. And it is marvelous in our eyes. So did you and I do better than anybody else? So how did we get to where we're at? How did we get righteous? How did we get saved? How did we get changed? It is the Lord's doing. And it is marvelous in our eyes. Uh, we, We see this. In, in the language of uh, 1 Corinthians 1.30, which we looked at a little in, on Tuesday night as well. It says this, and because of him, you are in Christ Jesus. So how, how is it that I'm in Christ Jesus and that person isn't? The traditional way of answering that is, because I followed Jesus. Because I turned to him. What does the scripture say in John 6:44? No one comes to the Father. No one comes unless the Father draws him. And so if we are in Christ, if we've come to him, we know it's because we've been drawn to him that our salvation is all of God, it is all of grace. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Again. To, to, to get a sense of, of this, we're, I want to remind you of simple things. In, in Luke chapter 19, verse 10, it says this concerning Jesus. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. And what does He do? He seeks them and He saves them. All of His lost. How many of those that, he's, that the Father has given Him is He going to lose? He will not lose a single one, but he will raise them all up on the last day. It's important for us to begin to, to see these, uh, the way that the scriptures put these pieces together. In Romans 10, verse 9 and following, it says this. If you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart, that God raised him from the dead you will be saved for with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses and is saved now. It's interesting just as a side note tying back into what we said earlier with the heart one believes. Now, we I think generally we would have said new no. with the mind one believes why does this say with the heart one believes. Because the faith that we have is not merely a mental agreement or a mental assent. It is the overwhelming attachment of our very soul's affections on Christ. With a heart, one believes. And with the mouth, one confesses. Verse 13 says this, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And how will they call on him in whom they've not believed? And how are they to believe in him in whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And so what does the scripture remind us here? Faith comes by hearing, hearing the words of Christ. So wait a second, how did faith come? Faith... Comes by hearing hearing the words wait a second Didn't I have my own faith and I put my faith isn't that the common language of the church put your faith in Jesus no no no. it's the scriptures. Don't say put your faith. It says believe in him What does that mean that means you believe in him with your whole heart and your whole mind well don't I have to put it in him No, he puts it in you and, and then you believe in him. Here, here's part of how we've got to understand this. Um, the scriptures remind us in Ephesians 2 so clearly. When, while you were dead in your trespasses and sin, he made us alive together with Christ. When did he make us alive together with Christ? When did we receive the benefits of Christ? Well, first you, first you no, first you nothing. You were what when God did this grace to you in Christ? Dead in your trespasses and sin. It's a lot like Matthew chapter, uh, in Mark chapter 5. There is a a young girl who has died and they bring Jesus and, and all these people are weeping at her because she's died. They bring Jesus to this place and Jesus comes in there and he tells her. Talita kumi, which translated means, little girl, arise. Now, I ask you this, how can you say that to a dead girl? Did the dead girl have to agree? Well, the dead girl was most agreeable once what happened? He didn't say come to life. He just said arise. That's right. The coming to life was entirely by his power, his prerogative, his initiative. And when he worked his work of power, bringing life where there was none, what was the result then? She heeded the instruction. She responded to the command. Why did she respond? Because he made her alive. He gave her life. The same thing happens over in John chapter 11. Lazarus has died and been buried a number of days. And Jesus says, roll that stone away from the tomb. And then what does he say? He doesn't say Lazarus, come to life, or Lazarus, if you're willing, if you're not busy, if you're not interested in other things. No, what does he say? Lazarus, come out. And what does Lazarus do? Now, how many times do dead men respond to instructions? But when did he, when did he make him alive? I didn't see. The resurrection act. I didn't see the life-giving moment. No. In neither of these two cases did you see the life-giving moment. What you saw was the fruit of the life that was given. And what was the fruit of the life that was given? They then responded to the words of Christ. Rising up, coming out, believing on His name. Forsaking all to follow him. Why do we do that? Because when we were dead in our trespasses and sin. He made us alive in Christ Jesus. It's it's one of the biggest struggles that people have tried to figure it out. They, they, They put things on the wrong side. If you do this. Then you will be born again. No. If you are born again. Then you will believe. God does not wait on your response. He himself brings life. And that life brings forth yours and my response. That is the grace of God. This is the Lord's doing. And it is marvelous in our eyes. Another way that it's said, looking to, to get a sense of this. Uh, just to to see that this is all accomplished in Christ. It says this in verse 26. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. Here, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Again, those are the words that were declared to Christ as he was coming uh, into Jerusalem, as they were saying, Hosanna, Hosanna on Palm Sunday. So we have these two clear references to Christ is the ultimate one. And look again at what it says here in Verse 27, the Lord is God, and He has made His light to shine upon us. So we were in darkness, and then what happened? We ran for the light, we saw the light at the end of the tunnel, Walk into the light, walk into the light. Is that what we did? We were in darkness, and what did God do? He made his light to shine upon us. So one moment, darkness. The next moment, light. And you know what I did? Nothing. It was all of God. The same terminology we see in Second Corinthians. I'm going to conclude by, by drawing our attention to this. Second Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4 through 6. Concerning those who are unbelievers, those who are refusing and rejecting the gospel, hearing the same message we are, but not receiving it, as they remain under the curse, as they remain under the condemnation, as they continue to be hardened in their own sin... It says this, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. And so you tell them, Christ is the light, Christ is the hope, and what do they say? Can't see it, I I just can't see it. But he is! I can't see it. And then here's what what the scripture tells us this. From seeing the light of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we, what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness. So here we have a connection to creation. When God was creating... There was nothing but darkness, and then God said what? Let there be light. And aren't you glad that darkness was willing? Now, did the darkness need to be willing? No, when God said, let there be light, you know what happened? Let me see, let me, let me see if I remember what the scriptures say. There was light. Huh. So was there not like a battle between light and darkness there? No, when God said, let there be light, you know what happened? Immediately, instantaneously, perfectly and profoundly, there was light. Here we are in the darkness and deadness of our sin. And in the same way, it says that the God who said, let there be light, let light shine out of darkness. Verse 6 of 2 Corinthians 4 Has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of glory of God in the face of Christ. And so the God of this age is trying, trying, trying to blind our eyes. And what does God do? He pours the light into our very hearts. (laughs) And we see and we believe and we follow. And we're made righteous. The curse is done away with. We are now changed. That, that faith is producing faithfulness. That, that uh, made right before God in Christ makes us want to walk in the way that is right. And so we have this, this amazing power. So the simple thing that we see in, in this section of scripture. And then it ends like this. Uh, You are my God, and I will give thanks to you. You are my God, and I will extol you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. And so the overflow of all of this, this is marvelous, is what? Thanks to God, praise to God, all of God, glory to God. And so we have laced into this remarkable revelation of Scripture these clear things. The fact is this. We are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ Alone, And all of it leads us to give the glory to God and to God alone. And we come to know and believe this because God himself has made this known to us through his scripture. And then enabling us by his spirit to lay hold of and believe and take him at his word. So by scripture alone, by grace, through faith. In Jesus Christ alone, all to the glory of God alone. There is no other salvation. There is no other hope. There is no contribution or part any man ever made but to be cursed, to be dead, to be in darkness. And we who were darkness are now light. We who were dead are now alive. We who are lost are now found. This is all the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Let's pray. Lord, we are so amazed at the way that your word so consistently reveals your power and your truth. Lord, we acknowledge that if you had not revealed these things, we would have never understood them. Because your ways are not our ways, your thoughts are not our thoughts, Lord. We are so limited by uh, even a tendency to misunderstand our own experiences. Because your grace so worked within us, we thought it came from within us. We thought it was of ourselves. But we thank you that your word reminds us that it was what your power produced in us, and we thank you for the fruit that overflows from that produce and that power of God. May you receive all of the glory. Lord, thank you for the salvation that you have given us in your Son. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.